Uh, it makes a huge difference when you know how much someone loves you. It makes a huge difference when you know how much someone loves you. Uh, in 2015, a Korean man went to huge lengths to show his girlfriend how much he loved her and to propose. Uh, while a couple sat in a restaurant across the street, friends and work colleagues uh, stuck thousands of post-it notes on the full-length windows on three floors of a neighbouring building. There they are sticking the, uh, the post-it notes. And uh, together they were making a big uh, love heart with a wedding proposal uh, spelled out on post-it notes inside. And there's all the friends. Now that's a big gesture, isn't it? I'm sure she's in no doubt how much he loves her. Uh, she said yes, by the way, as well. But that big gesture is nothing compared to the, the big gesture God has given us to show that he loves us. He's loved us before the creation of the world. And he wants us to know how much he loves us. But not just so that we can feel loved. He wants it actually to change the way we act. He wants us to know his love and to change the way we act. So that's what we're going to do today, answer those two questions. How do I know God loves me? And how should I live in response to that love? So firstly, how do I know God loves me? Because he's demonstrated it. He wants us to know. He's made a grand gesture far greater than thousands of post-it notes. He's given us his son. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's love, a gift that gives everything, life itself. That's love, a gift that was given to those who were undeserving and ignorant and unlovely. It makes the love even greater. And because we were helpless, because we were stuck in our sin, that was a gift we desperately needed. A gift that moved us from sinner to saint, from enemy to friend. A costly demonstration of generous love. Uh, 1 John chapter 4 verse 9 says something similar. This is how God showed love, his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. God's love language his gifts and acts of service. It's how he shows his love, through gifts and acts of service. He's shown love by sending Jesus. It's an act that defines love, says Paul. This is love. Love begins with God. It's his initiative. God's love is not a reaction to our worship, our love for him. Because true love initiates action rather than simply responds. Love begins with God. In love, he graciously chose us, sending his son to die in our place, calling us and saving us. In fact, one way of thinking about the story of the Bible is that it's one long love story. The story of the Bible is a love story between God and humanity, the, the bridegroom and the bride. The story begins with God making us his image bearers in the world. 
but in rebellion we turned away. And the rest of the Bible is the story about how God works to woo his unfaithful bride, to win her back, to entice her. He makes covenants with her, promising to be her God and to make her his people. Uh, The book of Isaiah, God describes this historic relationship with Israel uh, and likens it to a husband and and an adulterous wife. Chapter 54, verse 5, he says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. I think that's describing the history of Israel. God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. He made a covenant commitment to them to be their God. It was like a wedding ceremony at Mount Sinai. But they wouldn't commit within days. They were off loving other gods. And so eventually God sends them into exile for a moment. But then in love he he brings them back. But of course Isaiah is not the end of the story. They still aren't faithful. And so God has a better reconciliation between husband and wife planned. One of greater intimacy and faithfulness. In the fullness of time, Jesus comes. He brings the separation of husband and wife to an end and and then God joins us to Jesus in faith. The two become one flesh. Ephesians 5 uses that image of husband and wife to describe Christ and the church. And even that description of the two becoming one flesh is given to Christ and the church. A husband's sacrificial wife, sacrificial love for his wife is actually to be modelled on the love that Christ has for his bride, the church. And if we jump forward to the end of the Bible, the end of the love story, at the end of this world, when the new heavens and the new earth begin, Revelation describes eternity beginning with a wedding feast. It's the beginning of the eternal marriage describes Jesus the Lamb and his bride, the church. Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And that's the picture of eternity, that the joy and the unity and the intimacy will continue forever in the new heavens and the new earth between God the bride, God the bridegroom and his people, the bride. The story of the Bible is a love story. God's love demonstrated, most clearly seen in the giving of his son. Well, that's love demonstrated. Uh, Because God's demonstrated it to us, he he actually wants us to to recognise it, to appreciate it, not just to gain the benefits of the love, but but to see it and to understand the love. 
And that's what Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians and for us. He prays that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. The context of, of Paul's argument is about how God's spirit lives in us and how we can experience God's love because Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. And that's what it means, I think, when Paul prays that being rooted and established in love. It means the Christian experiences God's love because his spirit lives in them. God's love is the soil, our roots, the roots of our life are growing into. God's love is the foundation that our lives are built on, rooted and established. And Paul's prayer is is that when you begin to experience his love, he prays that we'd have the power to understand it. We already benefit from it. We're forgiven and adopted and Christ lives in us. But God wants us to build on that experience. And Paul prays that we would know how wide his love is, how all-inclusive, how encompassing, that there are no extremes of behaviour or acceptability that are beyond Christ's love. There's no one beyond the boundary of his love. Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. There is no situation where his love won't hold you. Like the kids talk that Merrick showed us, there is no danger, no enemy, no power that can separate you from his love because Christ's love is wide. God wants us to understand how long his love is. God's love is no teenage infatuation that lasts a lunchtime and then tomorrow has moved on to someone else. God's love began before the creation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says, He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. God has loved us for longer than the universe existed. And it's long love also in the sense that it's infinitely patient and long-suffering. There is no limit to the amount of unlovely behaviour on our part that God will overlook. There's no limit. It's not like human love that reaches a limit, that's fickle, that's transitory, that stays as long as the object of love remains lovable. It's not the marriage vow that says, I will remain, I will continue loving you as long as you maintain this weight and as long as you keep your looks and as long as you don't get wrinkles. That's not what God's love is like. His love is long. In Ephesians 34, 6 and 7, God describes himself in this way. 
the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. His love is long. And God wants us to have power to understand how high Christ's love is. What's that about? Well, perhaps the idea is that Christ's love boosts and promotes us. It's active and purposeful. Christ's love doesn't leave us where we were. It lifts us up. It makes us new creatures with a new purpose and nature and future. Christ's love moves us from one kingdom to another. Ephesians 2.6 God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. His love is high. Finally, God wants us to have power to understand how deep his love is. There's nothing superficial or mild about his love. There's an intensity to it. Jesus gave everything. The depth of his physical and spiritual suffering reflect his deep love for us. He emptied himself to come to earth. It reflects his deep love. And God doesn't just want us to understand or comprehend love. He wants us to know it, to experience it, to know it from the inside, to know it as the object of love rather than just an observer of love. And it's a task, that's a task, to to know love that that we'll never truly achieve. We, We can only begin to know. That's that phrase, that's what I think that phrase is getting at in verse 19 where it says, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Did you get how contradictory that sounds? How impossible to know something that surpasses knowledge? I think what he means is we can know something of it, but we'll never fully arrive. Mathematicians who get the idea of infinity or an asymptote, you know, you say to them, jump half the distance to the wall and then jump half the distance to the wall. How long will it take till you reach the wall? Well, you never reach it, do you? Because you keep jumping half the distance. You never make it to the wall. Non-mathematicians go, I don't get that. But an asymptote means you're getting closer, but you never get there. And I think that's the idea here, that know what surpasses knowledge. We know a little. We're getting closer. But we'll never arrive. We'll never know completely. But it's an assignment that, it's exciting. It's an assignment that's worth committing your life to, isn't it? How how do we do that? How do we know his love more? Well, we know his love more as we read and reread his promises, as we meditate on them, as we put them to the test and find them reliable. We know his love more. We know the love of Jesus more as we read and reread the Gospels, the descriptions of his life and his teaching and his character and the way he treated people. We know his love more. We know his love more as we just live the Christian life, as Christ dwells in our hearts through faith, as we trust him and as we obey him and 
and as we find him faithful and generous and wise and good, we experience his love day by day. And did you notice it's an assignment that you can't do on your own? This is a group task. Those of you at uni normally hate group assignments, but this is a group assignment to be done that that we should enjoy. Paul prays in verse 18 that we would have the power together with all the saints to understand the love of Christ. How do we help each other to know the love of God? Well, as we speak to each other and sing to one another of what we're learning and experiencing of God's love, others will come to know it more. And as we love each other more, both the lover and the beloved will grow in their experience of our Father's love. It's a group task. Well, that's the first two sections. Love demonstrated, love recognised. Thirdly, God's purpose in recognising it is that we might respond to it we show we've recognised it in the way we respond. And that's the main point of uh, the Bible reading we read earlier. The main purpose of 1 John is to help uh, the readers identify false teachers from true ones. And there are three tests, and one of the three tests for who's who's a true teacher is that they will love other Christians. The true response to God loving you is that you love his children. Uh, There in verse 7 of 1 John, uh, 1 John chapter 4. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love doesn't know God, because God is love. A person who doesn't love the brothers shows that they don't know God's love. God's shown us what love looks like. Love is costly and undeserved and sacrificial. Verse 9, he says, this is how God showed his love. He sent his one and only son into the world. How does God show love? Some people feel that God loves them when they look at a pretty sunset. Oh, God must love me. He's given me this sunset. Or they have a feeling of peace as they meditate by the ocean. God must love me. Look at that lovely ocean and how calm it is. Or because they get a new job or they have a new baby or because they're healthy and wealthy, God must love me. But those things come and they don't come to everyone. They they come to God's children, they come to those who aren't his children alike. They're no sign, they're no demonstration of God's special love. But what is clear communication of love is the giving of his only son to save us. That's the God who loves you. That's what love is. And the appropriate response to that sort of love is in verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, since God loved us in that way, we also ought to love one another in that same way. That's why we need to know God's love more and more, because it's the fuel to love others. To know and experience God's love is the fuel to love others, because we can only love the way the moon gives light. 
The moon doesn't produce light on its own. It, it reflects the light that comes from the sun. And true love doesn't come from within us. God's, the, the love that God gives doesn't come from within us. Uh, it shines from God onto us. We know it, we trust it, and then we reflect it on. That's what verse 10 is getting at, I think, when it says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. I don't think John's saying that we can't love God. I think it's saying love begins with God. We didn't love God first. It begins with him and then we can only love others truly with God's love when we are loved by God, when we know and receive it, when we're joined to the God who is love. Then we can love others with his love. If you don't know sacrificial, undeserving love to you, you can't love someone like that. You can only give a pale imitation. If you haven't received the undeserving, forgiving, giving everything love from God, if you have never been broken by recognising your complete unworthiness, then you can't love undeserving people. Not truly. Not the way God loves. Your love will be somewhat conditional. You'll love when they love you back or when they deserve it or when you feel like it. So here's the question. How well does our reflected love to others point people back to God's love? How well does our love point to God's love? Is our love costly and undeserved and sacrificial? Or is it conditional and calculating and self-protective? Does it point people to Jesus or does it point people away from Jesus? What's well, the first way we respond to God's love? We love one another. The second way we respond to God's love is not to fear, to be confident in any situation. To be confident in any situation. Romans 8.35 gives these amazing promises. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or, or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Whatever happens, there is nothing to fear. We respond to the fact that God loves us by not fearing. Nothing we face can separate us from his protective, powerful, saving love. Uh, the third way we respond uh, to God's love is to accept discipline. Not only can we be confident when bad things come, but we can actually accept them gratefully as discipline. Uh, Hebrews 12 encourages us, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. 
He punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. Bad things are not just to be endured with courage, they're to be accepted as training. Training that comes from our loving Heavenly Father. And just like physical training, where we say no pain, no gain, that's the same with spiritual training, with discipline. A few verses further on, there's this application. How should you cope with uh, the, the, the difficult things that come your way? Uh, verse 10, God disciplines us for our good, uh, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. I think that's spiritual feeble arms and weak knees, not physical. What he's saying is, let life's difficulties train your spiritual muscles. It's all coming from your loving Father who's wanting to grow your spiritual muscles. He wants them to be strong. James 1.2 says, don't just accept discipline, but rejoice in it. James 1.2 says, rejoice, consider it pure joy when you face trials because they're developing perseverance and maturity. Have courage, accept it, even rejoice in it. One final response to God's love. Let his love compel you. I love that word. Let it compel you, inspire you, control you. 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul gives us a hint as to what drives him. He's just talked about his life's work of persuading people with the gospel and how God's given him a ministry of reconciliation as an ambassador, that he implores people to be reconciled to God. And then in verse 14, we get this insight into his motivation. For Christ's love compels us. Because we're convinced that one died for all. And therefore, all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Christ's love compels us, fuels, inspires, motivates. He died for me. And so my response is to die. To die to my plans and ambitions. I belong to another. I am no longer to live for myself. I'm to live to him who died for me and was raised again. Let me finish uh, with this quote from uh, Jim Packer's fantastic book, Knowing God. They're great questions for us to contemplate uh, when we think about whether the truth of God's love has actually reached beyond our head to our hearts. Is it true that God is love to me as a Christian? If so, certain questions arise. Why do I ever grumble? and show discontent and resentment at the circumstances in which God's placed me? Why am I ever distrustful, fearful or depressed? 
Why do I ever allow myself to grow cool, formal and half-hearted in my service, in the service of the God who loves me so? Why do I ever allow my loyalties to be divided so that God has not all my heart? Let's pray. God of love, may all of us, being rooted and established in love, have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we might all be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen.